This episode of the Just a Mom podcast is the second in a two-part series with Megan. If you have not listened to the previous episode, please go back and listen to it before you start this one. Thanks again for listening to the Just a Mom podcast. Now here's the rest of my conversation with Megan. My name is Susie. I have three children, the youngest of whom struggles with anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. I never thought this could happen to me, and I miss the signs. Being a parent is really hard, but I'm here to help. I'm talking to other parents and experts to help you with the struggles that your kids may face. I want you to know that you are not alone and there is hope. Once see you smile again, take away that pain and them clouds that keep covering up the sun. Let's go back to when your child was in high school when you said, you know, things hey. kind of first started. And I, I, what you said, I think, resonates with so many people, including me, where you said, well, you know, he was a teenager and there was some normal, I put in air quotes, normal teenage behavior. And I think mm-hmm. that that can be a very difficult thing for parents to distinguish Right. You were in the same situation as we were where this was not our first child. This was our youngest child. We had parented mm-hmm. teenagers before, right? Mm-hmm. Where, you, know, mm-hmm. you know the ups and downs and Problem. and the hormones that can wreak havoc at, um, on a teenage brain. And so let's talk a little bit about what you observed and what you saw and what your thoughts were and what your gut told you. He was a uh, captain on across country and track teams and I think junior year and I went to all their events junior year they were at a cross country meet and there were some new kids some freshmen who had just joined and you know this was their first meet and our son was usually leading the pack we didn't see him come across the finish line. Where is he? Where is he? He came in close to last because he was running with those guys. Oh. And he and he was encouraging them. Mm. And every single one of them had a personal best record. Oh. And my son said, that's the best race I ever ran. Oh. That's, that's so who he is. cool, yeah. That's who he is, right? Mm. And super sensitive and... Then just like loss, he lost some energy. He lost, it seemed like he lost the interest in being a good communicator. Um, wasn't helpful around the house, like had the summer before college was kind of a couch potato. Hmm. And not showing leadership qualities at all, had a good pack of friends. And then just before he went off to college, um, he said to me that I had emotionally abused him his entire life. Oh, oh, wow. And, and, you know, of course that sent me reeling and I saw through every single moment of every day of his entire life wondering what I did wrong. Um, and then I thought, well, you know, he's, he and I were always really, really close. Mm. And it was really hard for him 
to go away to college. Mm-hmm. And he had to break something between us in order to do it. Mm. And that's how I understood that. I didn't understand it as a mental health issue where he really created a new narrative. Mm. His mind was telling him something that wasn't true, Mm. and he was believing it. And it was when he was in college when he had his first psychotic episode. And what what year in college was he? Freshman. Okay, so he was a freshman. Okay. Do you know, I'm guessing that you do because you are his mother and you are well-researched and well-educated in this, what percentage of people with mental illness have psychotic episodes or... Do you know? Any well, stats? schizophrenia is about somewhere between one and two percent of the population. Okay. Um, the I mean, there are people who have psychotic events who are not schizophrenic, and ha- it's mm-hmm. uh, we actually housed um, our son's best friend during the pandemic um, for part of the time, and. His friend had a psychotic episode for five days, mm. a delusion. I should say a delusional episode for five days. Okay. He thought he thought our son was trying to put LSD in his food. Mm. And I'm like, oh my god, not both of you! Come on, give me a break. <laughs> oh man. Oh. Um, but he recovered from that. I, it, the stress, I'm sure, of living in our family at that moment was pretty overwhelming. Mm. Speaking of your family, you have other children, as you've discussed, and grandchildren. How has your son's illness affected your other children um, as well as your grandchildren? Right. Well, um, when our son got ill, the rest, our three daughters were out of the house and you know, I've gotten through college and were establishing themselves or had established themselves. Um, and we had two granddaughters at that point, young. Um, I think that a few things. I think that we were so desperate for help, so desperate for help, that we probably asked for more than we should have from them in terms of support. Um, people with full busy lives and families. Um, I mean, everybody did reach out and stay connected with our son. Um, and I don't know how, and they still do. I mm-hmm. mean, things are are good. Um, and he's a family person. It's interesting. His middle name means home in Scottish. Um, he he um. Well, our youngest daughter at one point said to my husband, you know, you have three other kids. Mm. It's like, you know, okay, we're on a sinking ship. We're bailing out as fast as we can. And yet we still have to save our other children. Uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's tough. Well, um, they've come through it. I think incredibly well. We haven't really heard resentment. Um, 
or neglect type things. I think that, you know, if they were younger or younger siblings, it would have been a different story. Sure, sure. Yeah. You're going to put the attention on the child who has the biggest need at the time. That's right. You, it, it's about urgency. Yes. You know, where's the level of urgency? And that's where you have to put your attention. You're triaging your family. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good way to put it. For the listeners who are not familiar with what a psychotic episode looks like, would you mind sharing about that? No, not at all. Well, they can look very different. Um, psychosis can have any number of symptoms. There are some called positive, which are changes in behavior that are unhealthy, like hearing voices or seeing delusions or believing in bizarre things. Those are called positive symptoms. Negative symptoms doesn't mean that they're the bad ones. It means they're the ones that take away from the person in some way. They're no longer able to converse. They're no longer social. They no longer um, eat healthily or exercise or can even read a book anymore Hmm. um and so uh i don't know how varied the rate of decline is once someone is heading toward a psychotic break but our experience was disorganized thinking very short attention span started speaking in rhymes started just echoing what he heard and not contributing, just repeating what somebody else said or some portion of it. We always, as a family, um, sat around a round table and had dinner together. So that would mean that our son was sitting across from somebody. He couldn't make eye contact anymore. And at some point, he became hostile at the table. Um, So we ended up sitting on a couch in front of the TV with the TV on while we ate so that nobody was looking at each other, but we were still together. Okay. Um, our, our son had, I think of it as manic. I don't know if technically it was manic, but an episode of buying lots of books on spirituality and not being able to read them, but having them pile up in his room um talking about how the government is listening in on our phone um talking about being able to hear the neighbor's dog's thoughts um to be able to smell people in their cars as they passed us on the highway um and just taking off in the middle of the night and going out it, we live in the country finding a field and lying in it, hmm. um, riding his bike and crashing it in the middle of the night with no lights on and dark clothing. And hmm. um, and there's also was a component, and there still is, of wanting to get out of here, of wanting to change circumstances. And for me, it, I just made this connection. My husband's mother lived with us um, when she was dying, and I was her caregiver. And a few 
we had hospice. And a few days before she died, she kept getting up and saying, I just need to get out of here. I just need to get out of here. She, you know, she felt some impending doom, I think. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of what I think our son was experiencing. I just need to get out of the state. I just need to move to New York City and live on the street. I just need to do this. I just, you know, like anything but here, mm. because somehow here is what's bad. It's externalized. Mm -hmm. You also talked about having, a, at one point, having a hammer um, mm -hmm. under your bed, um, yeah. showing him, though, that you were not afraid of him. So I'd like to talk about that a little bit more. I, th yeah. I do think there's an element of misinformation in our society about, sure. you know, the dangerous, mentally right. ill person. And I think if anything, we've, we've learned that um, it's quite the opposite, typically, where someone who is severely mentally ill is more likely to be the victim yes. of violence or crimes than the perpetrator thereof. Absolutely. But since you mentioned... Um, some fear and some times that you took precautions. Would you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, again, hindsight, um, a lack of adequate uh, health care is at the root, I think, of this, the Atrocities that we see that include somebody, a, a perpetrator who was mentally ill, like the, the mass murderer in Maine. That man had been telling people he was going to shoot people and he didn't get the help. His family begged for him to have mental health care and he didn't get it. The uh, people at the, his, what is an army something, they saw him as mentally ill and eventually got him some help, um, but it wasn't adequate. He got released before he was stable. Um, but not, you know, being, it's a really hard question to answer. Um, son wouldn't hurt a fly, wouldn't hurt a fly. The disease is so unpredictable, I'll have to say, that understanding how unpredictable it was and not a whole lot more, but also understanding our son wasn't getting enough mental health care and the right medication. My husband decided to have a hammer under the bed. I was like, we are not hammering our child. I would rather die. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, I actually took the hammer away. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, what I've been perpetually worried about is that he's going to harm himself. Um, he only had one suicidal thought, ideation, and he was hospitalized. Okay. While he was there, he was, he planned to hang himself with a shower curtain. Mm. Um, yeah, but I, I, I I understand and I'm aware of the, the facts around people with serious mental illness and, you know, the people who commit violent crimes. And there's a very small overlap there. Thank you. I just want to 
to clarify that for the listeners. Yes. Um, yes. Because I do. Very, I mean, yes. Yeah. People with serious mental illness need our help. Yes. We don't need to be running the other way. Right. You mentioned at one point you contemplated ending your own <laughs> life. Yeah. Did you find yourself to be depressed at that time? No. No. Um, overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And unconsolable. Uh, nobody imagines they're going to live through this, that this would ever happen in their family. Nobody imagines this. And for it to happen, and then for to look at what it means for somebody to have schizoaffective disorder, a 23-year lifespan decrease, you know, 20% chance of suicide, uh, chronic, debilitating, um, and progressive, often, disease. I didn't, I just didn't know if I could live to see that. What was the turning point then for you that made you decide you could? I had to. I had to. It was my job. As a mom. I could probably have an impact that would make things better. And I could deal with my own pain in therapy, in support groups. But it wasn't the moral or emotional or practical answer to the situation. My next question is partially already answered by you, but you talked about the support group. You just mentioned your own therapy. What are some other things that you have done or are presently doing to take care of yourself, self-care, coping? Well, it's funny. I um, Just like I sort of created the, the phrase fierce advocacy, I, I work by the idea of self-maintenance. Okay. <laughs> to me, self-care means a mani-pedi, and I just don't do that. <laughs> but self-care means um, lots of different things. So. <laughs> I know it does. I know it does. Uh, I, I must have been introduced to the idea through things like that. But um, for myself, what do I do? I um, do oil paintings. I write. Um, I spend time with my grandchildren. Um, the work that I do through NYU has brought me really close to five incredible women who have lived experience, and we talk to each other via Zoom three hours a week. Um, and that's been really sustaining. Uh, eating well. I volunteer at our local science center, um, which is a hoot. I get to play with horseshoe crabs and slugs and lizards and boa constrictors and tortoises and you know uh, it's just great i mean i I am a 
a school teacher yeah. by trade and being able to sit on the floor with a boa constrictor and have a four-year-old want to hold it in its lap Ooh. is just incredible. Yeah. The parents are like, okay, that's <laughs> fine. You go ahead. Uh-huh. That would be me. <laughs> <laughs> mm. um, yeah. Th- those are things that bring me a lot of joy. Great. And it's good to hear you say that, that, you know, in spite of all the things that are happening and going on and that you have to deal with, that you're still able to have joy. Yes. And I realized, you know, that that phrase, I think it's like a, an uh, Alcoholics Anonymous phrase, one day at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, when things are bad, I... And I've been. I've said this to my husband. This is one moment. Mm-hmm. This this was a five minute episode that we dealt with. Mm. That was five minutes long, and we still have the rest of the day. You know, we could walk out to the pond and watch the sunset. We could play with the dog. I could call and talk to my mother. You know, that was five minutes in reality. Mm. It doesn't have to be my whole day. That's great. That just. I literally just moved backwards because that's one of those that I'm going to I'm going to hone in on that. Oh, good. That's really good because I think a lot of times when we're in the midst of incredible difficulty with uh-huh. our child uh-huh. that it's hard to see that it's hey, that it's not everything. It's not everything. Yes. Well, when I was giving birth to my children, the nurse or the yeah the nurse was saying it's just pain it's just pain and at first I was like yes <laughs> it is pain mm-hmm. yeah I didn't take any medication mm. but it hurt and she she said there is an end to this mm. you're going to work really hard it's going to hurt and then it'll be over so it will end and that helped me a lot and I'm not saying that my child's mental illness is going to end, but I am saying that five-minute difficult interaction will end, mm-hmm. you know, and you will still have connection and you will still love each other and you will still laugh at times, you know. So there are good things to look forward to still. And the worst moments aren't the definition of your life or your relationship with your kid. Mm. You are wise beyond words. You've just given multiple pull quotes here. So how has your son's illness affected your marriage? <laughs> we have done an incredible job as partners. Um, really. Good for you. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, my husband has deferred to me more because I've spent, sort of made it my full-time job to deal with this and to educate myself and to work in the field um, on it and uh, to be that fierce advocate. Um, but he's also, he's he sees a big picture and he sees a longer term. I'm like, no, we got to do this right now. And he'll say, well, let's think about that for a minute. Mm. you know. So he's been a mellowing or not mellow. I wouldn't say mellowing. I don't think anybody can mellow me, but um, <laughs> uh, he's helped me pause at times. Um, 
And he's an incredibly strategic thinker, and I am not at all a strategic thinker. So we've done a really good job. Mm. Um, it's, however, now that I'm working with people, caregivers who have are taking care of loved ones with serious mental illness, and I'm hearing horror stories and things like that, he can't hear them. He can't listen to them. It's, he, you know, he's got one, and that's plenty, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So... Um, I have other people I can talk to about that. That was my next question was, you know, when all of this first started, were you comfortable talking to family members or friends about your yes. son's illness? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's not always the case. That's un actually uh, kind of yep. unusual. And I certainly was of the camp that, oh, I can't tell anybody this because, you know, th that means I'm a bad mom. And, you know, I fell, in, uh -huh. I fell into that lie. Um, uh -huh. And then uh, finally, when I did start sharing it, I was like, well, that was dumb. I should have done that a long time ago because now I have all the support. Um, right. I, one of the... I I wrote an article for my local NAMI, and the title was, or maybe this was the national one. Um, it goes it, from it's all your fault mm. to it's all your problem. Mm. So mental illness in children f for decades, if not centuries, was blamed on the mother, yes. right? The parenting of the yep. mother. Right, you're you're either overprotective or you're not protective enough, or you sexualize your child, or blah 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 blah, whatever you know. So that was all your fault. And now, as we uh, struggle to find adequate care, as we struggle to uh, have health insurance uh, be truthful and in, in offer parity for mental health care. Um, for it to be affordable for people and for it not to be an all-consuming job. People have jobs they have to work at while their child is psychotic. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's gone from it's all your fault to it's all your problem. It's, it's hard to find enough support. Mm. And, you know, the, the mental health professionals are losing people all the time because they're understaffed, they're underpaid, they're underappreciated. Um, they don't have enough continuing education, you know. And and I also think if we if the people out there living with serious mental illness that like the people we see on the streets who clearly are not well, if that person was eighty years old and doing that same behavior on the street, we would take care of them. Mm. That's a really good dementia. Point. Somehow, somehow, we can have compassion for dementia in a way that we, as a whole, don't have compassion for mental illness. Mm. And it's a brain disease. That's right. It's a brain disease. Mm. I want to ask you how your son is doing now. He's holding a part-time job, doesn't have any friends. Um, he really suffers some side effects that are quite impactful. That's not even a word. I shouldn't say impact. will have a strong impact on him. Um, 
and is looking forward to getting off his meds because he believes those things will go away and he'll be fine. Um, he's a family person. Whenever we have gatherings, he's right there. He's an incredible uncle, um, really playful, um, willing to help out. You know, he set the Thanksgiving table and um, appreciated the food and played with the kids and took the dog for a walk and emptied the garbage, mm. you know, like just he's still participating. But it's as a 22 year old, it's not the life you really should be having. It's not really good enough. Mm. He, can't, he, he was so talented in his field and now he's just casting about for what it is he wants to do and it changes daily or weekly Hmm. so that's hard to see what gives you hope for his future i think you should rephrase Mm -hmm. that (laughs) do Mm -hmm. i have hope (laughs) um well i keep trying to make things better but i don't have much hope I have to say, mm. I don't have much hope. Mm. And that feels, I feel like, I feel guilty <laughs> that I don't have much hope. But maybe that's, you know, being a trauma survivor myself, maybe that's part of my, you know, always assume the worst because then you're ready for it um, kind of stance, um, which I'm trying to overcome. Mm. Uh, but I mean, Better medication would be great. Yeah. Can't we come up with something fast like we did for COVID? <laughs> right. You know, I. there needs to be better treatment and there needs to be more providers. So I can't do anything about either of those things. Right. It does seem as though medications... There are more medications than there used to be, that's for sure. But I will say, though, hearing you talk about, the, and, and I'm not a doctor, I'm not a uh-huh. mental health professional, I'm just a mom, but the, the uh-huh. medications that you talked about him taking, those have been around a long time, I think, right? Like clozapine and most. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. that, and again, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm going to guess that. There hasn't been a lot of research or effort put into finding new medications to treat schizophrenia, schizoaffective Uh psychosis. Is that correct? There are some things coming down the pike. There's some genetic research being done, which might be 10 or 20 years in the future, that we could genetically alter the genes that cause the illness and cure it. Wow, that would be awesome. Yeah. yeah. And there are a couple of new medications out there in trial that sound maybe kind of promising. What there isn't is a test to see that that could be given to see which medication you are genetically predisposed to be m- most positively affected by. Um, which would help enormously. It's I think I think the statistic is it can take up to eleven years to get the medication right. Wow. 
I think it's I think it's eleven, 11 years. It might years. be it might be seven oh, years, but, still, but it's like on average, it takes years, years and years before the medication is the right mm. one or ones, and the levels are right. Um, there's got to be a better way than tinkering with somebody's brain for that long. Right. The longer you wait, the worse it is. Mm. Genomic testing. Hmm. Anyway, I just wondered if that, and that's what yeah. they say it does, is that they're looking at the genes and maybe how uh, different people metabolize different medications and yes. then can yes. somehow, using that information, say, okay, well, we know then that ABC won't work for you, but you know, DEF right. might be better for you. <laughs> Has that made it into the realm of... of schizoaffective or schizophrenia i wonder not not in our experience i haven't heard of anybody having okay. that um be part of their loved one's treatment okay. but um i did want to say something also about you asked about um symptoms prodromal symptoms how do you know um and what what does psychosis mm -hmm. look like um in about 50 percent of people with schizoaffective or schizophrenia there's something called anosognosia, and it means not knowing. Um, and it is caused by lesions on the brain. It's a physical thing that makes it impossible for the person with the mental illness to recognize that they're mentally ill. Mm. It's not that they're being stubborn. It's not that their ego is in the way. It's that their brain can't believe there's a different reality. And our son has that. And that's why he thinks he's cured himself. And is there a way to remove those lesions? Apparently no. not. <laughs> no. Okay, wow. No. So it sounds like some, it, but, but what can happen in the best circumstances, and what our son has said is, look, if, if I need to be on these medications, if you see me deteriorating, I'll get back on them and I'll deal with the consequences of the, you know, the side effects. Um, I don't, you know, my psychology is, is healthy. That's what he says. I, I'm, I'm good. But maybe I need the medication just to stay out of the hospital. Not because I have a serious ongoing mental illness, but or maybe it's to prevent my parents from worrying too much. I'll do it for those okay. reasons. And that's a really good point because my understanding of mental illness is that Oftentimes, people do decide to stop taking their medications because they think yes. they're well or better yep. or that it's yep. gone. And so yep. the fact that there's yep. an actual physical reason uh -huh. that some people just don't believe that they even have an illness that needs to be treated. Right. And and um, also with people with bipolar disorder often will go off their meds because they feel great. Yeah. You know, they're they're manic. Sure. It feels great. Yes, and I've heard I've heard people say that before too. Um, can we talk a little bit more about what your work is um, with NYU? Uh, I we mentioned it earlier, but how did you get into that? How did you get involved with that? Yeah, I was lucky. Um, the on track family support group that we were part of um, one of the two facilitators got an email from the, the originators of the study 
saying we're looking for people to fill these family connector roles. Could you recommend anybody? And she forwarded the email to me and um, I applied and got wow. the job. That's yeah. pretty cool. It's very cool. <laughs> it's been really, it's really incredible. And how yeah. long have you been? And we, sorry, go ahead. We're doing it for two years. Uh, we've got an extension. Uh, we need more participants. We'd like to have larger numbers of participants. But what has been profound, really, for me is to, well, the model is we talk to a caregiver for an hour, hour and a half every week for six to eight months. And they can talk about anything they want. Our goal is to help improve their engagement with services, their understanding of the mental illness, um, and their empowerment as advocates. Um, and I've, I've seen profound shifts in caregivers when they're supported. Mm -hmm. Profound shifts. People who would never consider going to therapy going to mm -hmm. therapy. Um, people who have never talked to their loved one's providers, have never given collateral information, have never called to challenge a decision, do, doing that exact thing, being there for their mm. kid in a way that they didn't know that they were even allowed to be. You know, now you have to break those barriers and give yourself permission to be everywhere. Mm -hmm. Well, and having support too. People around, we yeah. weren't meant to do this alone. Yeah. Not at all. Life is not a solo not adventure. Absolutely not. No, it wouldn't be worth it anyway. Right. And <laughs> and especially when you're going through something so difficult and challenging to be able to talk to other people who get right. it. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. Yep. And we, uh, my colleagues and I have gotten so much helpful information through our own research and we share it with each other and we created an incredible resource um, list that has services. Most of the people I work, my colleagues are living in New York City. Um, a couple of us are living in more rural areas um, and there are challenges to each sure. of those. Um, but we're also looking ahead. Once the study is over, how are we going to use what we've learned in a way that that promotes supporting caregivers and that will be interesting to see how that you know yeah you're doing all this research and you're finding out this information and compiling this data and uh -huh. then what ends up happening with it i right well, when that happens i'm gonna ask you to let me know so that you can um, come back okay and, and give Great. us an update um all right thank I, you your resource list that you've compiled then is is for the state of New York or primarily New York City or um it it has all kinds of things it has websites mm. it has book recommendations it has articles it has lists i created a list of questions oh, caregivers great. should be asking providers and a list of questions providers should be asking caregivers that's great um so like a handouts kind of thing um then I'm going to get that from you and I'll link it in the show notes if, if I could do that. Great. That'd be fantastic. Yep, sure, that'd be great. Um, 
I think that that would be a very helpful resource for listeners to have. I'd probably learn a lot from it too, because we all just are continuing to learn from each other. That's right. That's right. That's one of the things that is so amazing to me about the mental health community is there. I you don't get a sense of competition. At least I haven't. It's it's let's let's link arms here and help each other and figure out what what can we do to advance the cause. What can we do to that's right educate more people. Right. And, and providers need more education around serious mental illness. One of my daughters is a doctor of nursing, um, and she said the education she got around serious mental illness was um, they got headphones and they had voices in their ears while they were trying to listen to a lecture, which is cool, but that's not all that it is right she's like okay so that may had a big impact but i don't know what to mm-hmm. do about it mm. and I, another provider i know psychology or doctor of psychology said and and they work with children with autism and their families said before i was working on this project i was afraid of people with mental mm-hmm. illness i had no idea wow. you know i and there are providers who won't deal with who will not take patients who have serious mental illness mm. um I think it's probably most, well, it's a lack of education, and it's also a recognition that it's really hard to work with people with serious sure. mental illness. Sure. Wow. Megan, this has been really incredible. Um, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to share? Well, I think that um, if you, everybody knows somebody who struggles with mental illness of some level right? Everybody either has something or knows somebody, right? So we're all in this together. And there ought to be no shame around owning your own struggles or anybody else's. We're we're all swimming in the same ocean. You know, some of us are better swimmers, Mm. maybe. (laughs) But, you know, and some of us might need a float. Right. (laughs) Um, but here we all are together, and it's not an us and them. And, you know, I think stigma around mental illness is a crippling malignancy, yes. really. Um, and it can be hard to say, I have a mental illness, or I struggle with depression, or I'm anxious all the time, and I take medication, and that helps. But the more we can normalize it, the better. The better. That's all. Completely agree. It's okay. It's okay not that's to be okay. That's exactly <laughs> right. And that's that's why yeah. I do this podcast to try to get stories like yours to other people. I really appreciate your work. Thank very you. Much. And I appreciate your work. And we're, well, we're thanks. doing this together. So, we are. Well, Megan Rose, it has been an incredible pleasure getting to visit with you and and I really appreciate your willingness to be open and vulnerable with your story and I love the incredible work that you're doing um, in the mental illness mental health arena um, to to learn how to how can we support caregivers in a better way I think that's fantastic but I really really do appreciate um, 
you being on this episode of the Just a Mom podcast. Thanks for asking me. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or ideation, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. Take away that pain and them clouds that keep covering up the sun